evening. You're very docile tonight. This is the last lecture of the spring series, and we'll take a break between now and the end of May from the looks of things, and then things will start up again with um, considerable vigor, as you know. One of my professors in the English department here at Columbia was Howard Schles, who started academic life as a medievalist, but for reasons which were never explained to us, got himself interested in poems on affairs of state, collections of verse, frequently anonymous, usually scatological or highly critical, of various events having to do with English politics in the 1670s and 1680s in particular. Poems on Affairs of State has been edited in a multi-volume work, which, if I remember correctly, was put out by Princeton some years ago. And Howard Schles was allocated the year 1682. And indeed, if you look at Poems on Affairs of State in the library, you will see Howard Schles's name on the spine of his year. This enabled him to go around muttering in class that he was the world's expert on 1682, he had a friend who was the world's expert on 1681 and another who was the world's expert on 1683, but by God, 1682, you couldn't touch him. Day by day, he could take you through the events of London in particular at the time because this is how you dated what were frequently very otherwise difficult to date pamphlets. Our speaker this evening is the world's greatest poker player. <laughs> and he can prove it, too. He actually won the World Series of Poker at Las Vegas earlier this year. That's his avocation. Uh, I'm not prepared to stand up here with a tape recorder going and say that he is the world's greatest bookseller as a vocation, but he's a very good one and has thought for a long time on the relations between rare book librarians and their ilk and the antiquarian book trade and its, and it's a great pleasure to have him here tonight to talk on that subject, Mr. John Jenkins. title of my talk, which came from Terry, is The Cowboy and the Farmer Should Be Friends, and that's that relationship between librarians and booksellers. I was under the impression that I was going to be speaking to library school students initially, and some of what I say may seem simplistic to you, but when I went through my talk after I discovered that I was wrong about the audience, I decided that, simplistic though it is, what I've got to say really uh, sums up my feelings about the relationship between librarians and booksellers and whether that's as complex as you might desire uh, or not, I hope uh, you'll at least bear with me on what my opinions are. Librarians and booksellers are not two sides of the same coin. Both spend their lives with books, but their perspectives are different in a number of crucial respects. Placed at their most disreputable extremes, the one is a hoarder and the other a hawker of books. I intend to speak tonight about neither of these extremes, but rather about 
that middle ground in which the librarian and the bookseller, like the cowboy and the farmer, should be friends. Some of what I have to say may seem obvious or, or even simplistic, but I hope that the end result will be a little better in understanding of the nature of the relationship, at least of my own conception of that relationship. The booksellers to whom I will be referring are those who sell rare books as opposed to second-hand or new books and identifiable in this country by their membership in the ABAA and known generally as rare bookmen or somewhat more pompously as antiquarian booksellers. Our new trade journal, which I had named simply the Professional Rare Bookman, came under fire at our last board meeting by our feminist members who demanded that we change it to the Rare Book Person or the Antiquarian Book Person. We compromised and altered the title to the Professional Rare Bookseller, by which I s we are all, I suppose, adequately described. The characteristics of the typical Rare Bookseller are difficult to extract because there are no typical booksellers in this country except for a small coterie of Anglophiles who imitate the speech, attire, and catalogs of what they visualize to be the typical English bookseller. On the other hand, the majority of American booksellers do share some perhaps rather surprising traits. First of all, they tend to be highly educated, well-read, and genuine experts in some field. The 450 ABAA members have collectively written well over 2,000 books and articles. In not a few instances, the world's leading authority in a particular field turns out to be a member of the ABAA. Many booksellers have been seduced into the book trade directly from the law, the lectern, or the library. Possibly as many half as half have come from one of these professions. The source of seduction, simply stated, is that the bookseller gets to spend more time with books more time reading, studying, and learning than does the lawyer, the professor, or the librarian. Moreover, even if he specializes, the bookseller is forced by the nature of his trade to study broadly as well as specially. The bookseller never knows what will be in the next library he has the opportunity to buy, and once he acquires a library, he must learn about its subject. So the bookseller is, at his roots, a perpetual student, a person who never stops studying. One of my more memorable conversations was with a venerable bookseller in Oxford, England. He was at the time 103 years old and still working every day. He showed me the catalogs he had issued in the 1890s and asked me with great interest what I thought the future book trends would be as well as telling me about his own current and future projects. Most booksellers then are students and scholars until their dying day. Now, I'm aware that there are non-scholarly booksellers even within the ABAA. Some of the biggest klutzes in the world are booksellers. But they are a minority, a small minority. One of the things I'm most proud of during my time on the ABAA board is that we have, since 1978, begun to take a stand and deny membership to those who do not maintain a professional attitude towards bookselling. On the other hand, every bookseller is also a capitalist, a businessman. And it is in this respect that he differs so markedly from the librarian. He makes money selling books. And worse still, he seems to like doing so. Even the most preposterously pompous and snooty bookseller is out to make a buck. When I started in business, the commercial aspects of our trade were played down as though they were an embarrassing secret. 
Nowadays, it appears to be just barely acceptable to talk about how we make money selling books. I confess it now openly. I make a profit in my book business. If you buy books from me in the future, I will make, I sincerely hope, a profit on your purchase. If you reflect on what I've said so far, you will begin to realize some of the possible sources of irritation between the bookseller and the librarian. The bookseller as book lover is acceptable. The bookseller as scholar is commendable. But the bookseller as salesman is suspect, a bit too tainted with that nasty world of buy and sell and barter. Still in all, we booksellers can't help it. Not only must we make a profit to survive, most of us, perhaps even all of us, enjoy the business aspects of our profession. I like buying and selling, although I certainly enjoy buying a lot more than I enjoy selling, and I enjoy studying books even more than buying or selling them. There, there are both practical and moral restraints, however, on the bookseller in his making of a profit. If I want you to continue to buy books from me, I can't cheat you or hustle you or con you. If I expect to be in business in the year 2000, I have to have your respect and your confidence. Far too many young bookmen forget those axioms, and by reaching too high in their prices or too far in their exaggerations, fail as a result. The ABAA during the past five years has gone a long way to clarify and codify our tradecraft into practical guidelines which aid the seller and the buyer in our trade. We issued recently a booklet entitled Guidelines for Booksellers with specific trade practice standards for our profession. And failure to live up to those can result in expulsion from the ABAA. If you are hustled or conned or cheated by a bookseller who is an ABAA member, the ABAA board will welcome your complaint and will do something about it. There are bad apples in every trade and every profession, and I know there are some among booksellers. What I am saying is that we are policing our profession and have provided a forum to hear and act on any complaints, including expulsion if justified, and no ABAA member can afford to risk expulsion. The primary point of contact between the bookseller and the librarian is not face-to-face, -face, but via the catalog. Whether through the catalog or its extension, the direct quote, the bookseller speaks to the librarian through a special language known as the catalog entry, but which I call, uh, choose to call bibliospeak. There are about 10,000 out-of-print booksellers in America, about 1,000 of whom issue catalogs. I personally receive about 25 catalogs per day, each with an average of about 400 books. That is to say, if I want to spend the time, I can examine descriptions of some 10,000 books every day. In each entry, the bookseller attempts to communicate enough information to the librarian or collector to describe the book, usually along with a pitch to tell him why it should be bought. All this must be done with an eye to conservation of space because catalogs are extremely costly. It is in these catalog entries and in the bibliospeak in which they are written that most of the misunderstandings between librarians and booksellers occur. I'm going to pause at this point and ask you all to take a little test. What I've got here is the top sheet of this. Right and back has ten questions that I would like for you to answer. In other words, read these entries and see what you think would be the appropriate price for the book. 
as described. you will get to keep these. Now don't go through the back. Read it.
everybody about through? No. No? All right, take your time. I'm... The rest of my talk is only an hour and 40 minutes. Those of you who have finished the remainder of things are actual entries through the years each with an example of bibliospeak. Some crooked, some dishonest, some ignorant, some simply uh, a bookseller who could not uh, hold his exaggerations in. But each of them contains some aspect of bibliospeak. The last few pages are some examples of what I consider to be truly great catalog entries and the very last page on the back explains what's wrong with each of the sample entries. Reading it will pay you rich rewards if you're going to buy books from catalogs. The purpose of this exercise has been to show in an exaggerated way that the language of the catalog is quite different from the language of the Library of Congress catalog card. This is quite properly so. The catalog entry is an advertisement. The ability to read book catalogs and understand them is an art that is necessary for any successful acquisitions librarian to acquire. Everyone understands the salesmanship in the soap or coffee ads on television, yet I repeatedly encounter surprise and dismay from librarians over the salesmanship that is a part of every book catalog entry of every bookseller. The librarian expects a forthright statement and the bookseller gives him a pitch. Certainly, the ten samples in my little test are greatly exaggerated and some amount to outright con jobs. The purpose of the test is to show that, either psychologically or deliberately, the bookseller accentuates the positive and downplays the negative. Every bookseller does this. Every bookseller does this. This salesmanship is a fact of life and will remain so in the trade craft of the bookseller. Like it or not, you will always encounter some degree of sales technique, however subtle or hidden, however brash or blatant, in every rare book catalog that you ever read. So arm yourself with an understanding of that special language of bibliospeak. I recommend that no one should attempt to read book catalogs until he has read David McGee's A Course in Correct Cataloging or Notes to the Neophyte that delicious and delightful exposition of the curious lingo of the rare book trade. As Saul Cohen has said, only in a bookseller's catalog can good mean not so good. A good copy is not one to turn handsprings over. Very good, he says, is not so bad. Internally good, on the other hand, is not so good. This rigmarole meets its subtlest in the word fine, a fine copy means different things to different people. Generally, a fine copy is simply an average copy with nothing blatantly wrong with it. Actually, one rarely encounters the word fine without modifiers. Very fine, almost fine, spine faded, else fine. The best I ever saw was a Texas bookseller, not myself, most of whose books were described as relatively fine. <laughs> There are three other terms that I've always secretly wanted to employ. Formerly meant. 
a post in cannabulum. <laughs> and D-O-R, defects on request. The fine points of the tradecraft of book cataloging become so preposterous, particularly when one encounters two booksellers bickering over whether a copy is as advertised or not, that I've come to believe that rare booksellers live only on the periphery of sanity. That may well be true, but the same may be said of collectors and librarians. We once received a postcard, for example, that read, Mr. John Jenkins, dear sir or madam, will you... Will you please send me your current catalog of rare books on the Holy Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Fatima, also books on Memphis, Nazis, and machine guns. I have had some strange experiences with librarians. One sent me a long 12-page single-spaced want list. It consisted of nothing but ISBN numbers. Another librarian in California ordered over 90% of the books in one of our catalogs sent us some 700 triplicate order slips and then left on a summer sabbatical. Early that September, we got all of the books, all 30 cartons of them, back in the mail shipped to us COD. When I phoned the librarian, he refused to take the call. His secretary later told me that he had put check marks in our catalog beside all the books that his library already owned. And the art department had duly issued purchase orders for each one. The librarian didn't find out until he returned. He was a gutless bastard and didn't have the courage to admit his mistake, nor the decency even to pay the expenses of the shipments to and from his library. These idiosyncrasies are what make the book business so fascinating. Something must be right between the librarian and the bookseller, because there are estimated annual sales of roughly a billion dollars a year worldwide in rare books. Most of these sales are to librarians or to collectors whose collections are destined to go eventually intact to a library. There exists an essential partnership between the two that if approached in good spirit pays rich rewards. The librarian and the bookseller do need each other. No librarian anywhere is as good at finding books he needs as is the professional rare bookman. No rare bookman can survive without libraries to sell to, not in the present day. It is a relationship that I have personally found immeasurably pleasurable. Some librarians who scoff at the bookseller are sarcastic about his role in building libraries. But I ask you, show me one single great library built in the past century without the aid of the rare bookman. It does not take long for the buying librarian to find out who among the booksellers can be trusted for expertise and fair pricing. Now, from the booksellers' side of the fence, why do the books cost so damn much? Is there some conspiracy to jack prices up so they're out of reach? What makes one book cost a lot and another very little? Why do rare book prices increase? Will they continue to increase? In 1980, the brokerage firm of Salomon Brothers published a chart comparing all types of commodities for the decade of the 1970s. At the top was rare books over gold, silver, antiques, land, art, oil, housing, stocks, and bonds. Only Chinese ceramics, a minor field, was higher. Why? To put, due to the simplest of economic axioms, the law of supply and demand. 
This simple fact was brought home to me accidentally a few years ago on my way to the London airport. I happened to notice outside the window of my lorry a sign on a building reading Jenkins Antique Manufacturing Company. I noticed it, of course, because of the name, but I did a double take when I realized what business was going on inside that building. The company wasn't actually faking antiques. What they were doing was making reproductions, thousands upon thousands of them. The demand had outstripped the supply, and that company was the natural result. When I began to think in those terms about my rare books, I realized clearly for the first time what it was that made rare books go up in price. To put it as succinctly as possible, the supply of original copies of rare books is strictly and absolutely limited while the demand is steady and increasing. In 1975, I acquired the Everstadt collection of some 40,000 rare and near-unique books. What made the collection so significant was that the Everstats had realized about 1920 what was going to happen to scholarly books during the next 50 years. While dilettantes were collecting Galsworthy and Maysfield, the Everstats gathered early American travel guides, county histories, and primary source books. Fifty years later, when I entered the picture, they had a collection that was incalculable, literally, in value and utterly irreplaceable. My bankers, to whom I am perpetually in hock, have always tried to get me to give them a monetary value to stick on the books. All I can say is that, quite truthfully, like some Aladdin's lamp, what is left of the collection at the end of each year after selling from it is worth more than what the whole was worth at the beginning of the year. What is still left in 1983 is worth more than the whole collection was worth in 1975. My normal supply sources are severely limited. It's been years since I found a rare book in an old attic. Whole fields are ceasing to exist on the market. A large percentage of the titles I sell will never come my way again. The books I sell go off the market for a thousand years unless one buys the premise that Yale, Harvard, and the Library of Congress are going to fold up and have giant garage sales. Many American libraries are now in the process of releasing duplicate copies, and this is presently my primary source for new stock. However, this process will not continue at the same pace as in the last few years, simply because there is a greater demand than there is a supply even of library duplicates. The perennial complaint among rare bookmen is, of course, is not I need more customers, but I need more books. The bookman spends his life worrying not over how to sell his books, but over how to replace those he has sold. This old saw of the book world is becoming less and less of a cliché and more and more of a stark and terrifying portent of a dismal future. Anyone who has read my Future of Books essay knows my feelings on this subject and anyone who has not read it should. Let me now proceed to sum up what I believe are the responsibilities of the bookseller to the librarian. Basically, as I see it, the bookseller fails if he fails to seek and find books that the library needs. He fails if he neglects to study and make himself knowledgeable in his customer's field of interest. He fails if he pays too much, and he fails when he prices a book too high. He fails if he overpitches his descriptions of the books he has for sale. He also fails, I personally believe, if he sells unique books, manuscripts, or research materials to the wrong library. 
such as selling a hundred unpublished Thomas Jefferson letters to a modern literature library in Texas, as I saw happen, or if he sells them to a private collector or investor, unless the ultimate destination of that collection is a public institution. Many a time in my career I have been faced with this problem of what to do with important, unique research materials. While a book catalog should be strictly first come, first served, with all catalogs mailed at the same time, I nevertheless feel a duty to quote in advance unique materials to the library where they would be the most useful. That attitude has sometimes gotten me in trouble with my private collectors. However, I built my career on the philosophy that books and libraries are for use. I do not believe in the collector or the library as hoarder of books. I recognize and acknowledge the value of books as icons, of books as cherished mementos of bygone days, and of books as works of art. I recognize and acknowledge that it is in the nature of civilized man to treasure originals over copies. I confess to holding these feelings myself, but I believe even more strongly that the primary purpose of books is as tools for research and study, as objects to be grasped and made use of. Consequently, when I get valuable research materials that are unique, I am going to make every effort to find them a home in a library where they will be most effectively made use of. But we don't have the money. That's what I hear over and over. We've got to buy periodicals and microfilm and computers. All I can say is that any library, whatever its budget, can find a way to add to its strengths with a careful program of acquisition. Alumni love to give money to buy rare books. Don't tell me they don't. I know they do. I've hit, up, hit too many of them up myself, and I've been hit up for donations too often myself not to know the simplest, most basic fact of library budgeting, and that is the money is out there if the effort is made to get it. It's not a part of what one learns in library school, and it may be distasteful to the effete, but fundraising is an integral part of building any rare book library. So the librarian fails, and it is a failure, if he fails to actively build his collections. And it is no excuse, no good excuse, that he has budgetary problems. Everyone has budgetary problems. It's the librarian's duty to find funds when necessary to support his collections. And it has been my universal experience that for good books and manuscripts, money or donors can always be found. Also, the librarian fails if he fails to make his collections readily available to the researcher and historian, or if he squirrels new materials away for years in mysterious processes of accession. A few years ago, I located a copy of a hitherto no unknown American Indian captivity, the only known copy of the first edition of the Rachel Plummer narrative, suspected to exist, but hitherto no copy known. The text was primary and substantially different from all subsequent editions. Unfortunately for me, the used book dealer who had it on his shelves, who had had it on his shelves in Houston for over a year unsold, got cagey when I walked in and showed an interest. His marked price of $100, he said, was inaccurate. Would I pay triple that? Yes, I said. Well, would I pay 1000 After much bickering and no little bitterness over several weeks, I bought the book marked $100 for $5,000. Immediately, two major libraries came to my mind. They represent the how-to and the how-not-to of building a great research library. 
the How Not To School told me flatly that its budget was all spent, thank you, and goodbye. The How To School, that is to say Archie Hanna at Yale, said its budget was spent, thank you, and we'll take it. Could I get it in the mail today? The chance to acquire the only known copy in existence of the most desired hitherto unknown of the Wagner Camp, Howes, and Streeter bibliographies was all that was asked for by that great librarian. Raising the $7,500 I wanted would be difficult, but that was part of the job, which was to build a great library. Actually, the process went a step further because Hannah allowed the book to be reprinted in a facsimile edition so that its text would be available to historians everywhere, not just at Yale. Parenthetically, the other school, the How Not To School, recently refused permission to allow microfilming of their own unique Texas imprints when the Streeter Texas reprint project under Hannah's direction got underway. Finally, the librarian and the bookseller have a mutual responsibility to each other in regard to security and theft. The librarian fails if he fails to adequately secure his books, if he invites theft by lax security. He fails also if he neglects or refuses to report thefts, something which is utterly inexcusable now that the ABAA and library groups have established our elaborate but provably workable reporting system. Naturally, the bookseller fails if he knowingly buys stolen books or refuses to return innocently purchased stolen books or if he does not cooperate in helping to catch book thieves. Any bookseller, collector, or librarian who has not read our joint security pamphlet is negligent in this regard. And neg negligent is perhaps too nice a term. Since 1963... My gross sales have exceeded $40 million, a figure larger, for example, than Harry Ransom spent during his entire career of buying the collections for Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas. More than 5 million books and manuscripts have passed through my hands. And if I'm fortunate enough to be able to continue in business, it's likely that by the end of my career, I will have sold more books than there are in any single library in America. I say these things not to be boastful, but to explain a motivation. Of all the books and manuscripts and research materials that I've handled, over 80% have gone directly or indirectly into some public library. Although there are probably few who would believe it, it is that contribution and not the profit motive which has been the prime motivation for me in being a bookseller. Frankly, I make more money in my publishing, oil, and motion picture ventures than in rare books. But in the rare book world, I have a chance to make an impact that is lasting. This impact will not be readily visible. The books I find and sell will be in libraries everywhere, but my name will not be connected with them. No, my contribution as a bookseller will not be readily visible, but it will be there nonetheless, and I will know it, and that will be enough. I believe that every committed bookman feels that way at heart. I also believe that most librarians are aware of that attitude, and that is that it is from this that the spirit of partnership between the two worlds derives. It is not necessary to say that the bookseller and the librarian should be friends. They are. Thank you.